Good morning again. It's good to be with you as we dive in again to the book of James this morning. This morning we'll be looking at James chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. And if you've been with us through our James series, you'll note that we've covered some, some territory in James. And, and James is one of those books that, that maybe you're familiar with, maybe you're not, but it's a book where the gospel sometimes seems like it's not front and center. And that would be a fair observation when you read through James. Uh, Jesus, his name, what he does, doesn't really jump to the surface like it does other places in Scripture. But even as we look at the text today, we'll see that to make any sense of the book of James at all, you need to know the gospel. You need to know that the gospel is the foundation of what James is, is writing about. And it's in that spirit that we look at this text this morning. James 8 through 13 is a continuation of what we saw last week where James instructs the church to, to figure out how not to be partial, how not to sort of prioritize the rich and put down the poor. And why does he ask that? Well, it's a reflection of the gospel. And so you and I, as we turn to this text today, our goal is to see with James how the gospel causes us to live. How should we live differently because Jesus came and taught us how to live? So let's stand this morning for the reading of God's word. Take it from James chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, as we come to it, would you, through the power of your spirit, show us where we have failed? Would you convict us of sin? And even as you do that, Lord, would you point us to your mercy? Lord, would you bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together this morning? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So a game that uh, my family has played frequently is, is Would You Rather? And I'm sure you're all familiar with this game, whether you know it or not. Uh, it's a very simple, simple game, but you can play it for a long time. Uh, all you have to do is come up with a question and say, would you rather do this or, or that? And for whatever reason, most of them in our family happen at mealtime, and they're about food. And so somebody, usually one of our girls, will ask a question like this, would you rather eat pie or ice cream for the rest of your life? Now, that's not a simple question. That takes some digging to really understand. Or, or maybe it's, would you rather eat cherries or strawberries or all these kind of questions? They're all about food. Why do I bring that up? Well, we're pretty innately designed to categorize things as our favorites, right? We have things we like and we have things we don't like. We have things that we would rather do and things that we wouldn't rather do. And in a sense, James, in, in a much more serious way than food, is talking about this dynamic, this would-you-rather scenario. And in a sense, if we read the context, what he's saying is, would you rather be around rich people or would you rather be around poor people? Would you rather associate with those who have prestige, position, and authority, or would you rather be with those who really, culture says, have nothing to contribute? And 
he doesn't ask us to answer that directly, but he, he exposes that our hearts sometimes gravitate towards this reality of showing partiality, that we think that some people are maybe just a little bit more worth our time, our energy, and our attention. And especially he talks about rich and poor, and he talks about this not generally in the culture, but within the church. And he gives us examples of it earlier in the text, but here in this passage that we look at today brings, again, this idea of partiality and basically says this should not be the case in the church. If we're going to live as people who know the gospel, if we're going to live as people who live in line with the gospel, we are going to be those who do not show partiality. And he asks us to consider this carefully. How do we do this? How do we live lives that aren't partial? Well, it begins by loving others, all of them. Verse 9 in this text, or verse 8 rather, has the, this command, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's probably not news to many of you. You may have heard that before. It comes around frequently in Scripture, this idea of loving your neighbor as yourself. But notice how he introduces it in verse 8. He says, if you really fulfill... If you really fulfill, and there's this sense of desire to saying, this is what you really need to be after, and this is something that, in context, doesn't seem that they're doing fully. If you really fulfill, if you actually do this, you get to the end of this verse, it says, you are doing well. I think all of us hear that and say, I want to be the one doing well. I want to be the one that James says, I am following the teachings of Jesus. I know the gospel, and I'm living it out. How do we do that? It begins with this idea of loving your neighbor as yourself. Loving your neighbor as yourself. And he defines this love as the royal law. Now, what is a royal law? It's not a phrase we see often in Scripture. It could mean that it's just sort of a, a, a chief law, sort of a great law that's sort of at the top of the laws. Or it could mean something that just is a, a summation of all of the law. But if we're careful to what James is saying, it seems that the royal law is the law of Jesus. It's the law of his kingdom. And we see that back in James 1.25 and later in, in this passage in James 2.13. This idea that the law is shown, fulfilled, accomplished through Jesus. And now he is saying, James is saying, because Jesus came, because he taught us the way he did, because he went to the cross, all of those things, this is how you live. This royal law is ground in Jesus and what he has done. And so you and I are to love our, your neighbor as yourself. Now, where does this command come from? We can go back to the Old Testament and find it. We can go to Le Leviticus 19, and we'll see that this law is given as we see it. Love your neighbor as yourself. But in that context, we get a little bit of help in understanding what this means. Some of the things that are listed around this idea are paying your workers every day so that they go home and actually can buy bread for their family. It talks about the blind and those who cannot hear and, and that we should care for them. It talks about welcoming strangers into our home, those who are in need, those who are poor. Those are sort of the, the dynamics that are described here. So it's not this general command, but even as it's given in the Old Testament, it has some specificity to it, some ways to actually tangibly live this out, that we would love our neighbor as ourself. And as we do that, we are not, verse 8, to show partiality. If you are doing so, you are committing a sin and are convinced by the law as transgressors. Now, what is partiality? Partiality, we could say it's favoritism. In a sense, it's looking at two people and saying, I'm going to treat this one person just a little bit better. 
Why? Because I think they're maybe more valuable. I think there's more that they could have to offer. And again, James is specifically talking about rich and poor, but we can really apply this principle, I think, fairly broadly to think of the ways that we gravitate towards saying this one person is just a little bit better, a little bit more interesting than somebody else. I think they're more strategic. I think I'm going to spend some time with them. And James says that's not how the church works. Now, when we talk about favoritism, I think most of us are choosing or partiality. Most of us think this isn't really a big deal. Maybe, maybe you've seen this commercial. It's for a bank. Um, it has nothing to do with banking, the commercial, though. Um, the scene opens on this commercial, and Charles Barkley, the Hall of Famer NBA player, is, is standing there with a group of maybe seven-year-olds. And what are they doing? They're playing pickup basketball. And they're picking teams. And who gets picked first? Charles Barkley. He's six-foot-whatever, Hall of Famer, and everybody else are scrawny little seven-year-olds. Of course you're going to pick Charles Barkley. And what does he say in the commercial? He says, I told you they'd pick me first. Now, why do I bring that up? Because I think sometimes that's how you and I think of a favoritism. It's like, okay, not a huge deal. Of course you're going to pick Charles Barkley, right? If you want to win a basketball game, you're not going to pick the seven-year-old. You're going to pick Charles Barkley. But what James is saying is it's not just about picking Charles Barkley. It's about picking Charles Barkley and saying there's something innately better about him. He's a better human being. He's more valuable. And when we move into that category of saying that somebody is more valuable than somebody else, that they deserve more honor than somebody else, that's where James says we've missed the gospel. That we've stepped outside of the royal law of loving your neighbor as yourself. Maybe some of us hear this and we still say, really, have I really ignored a part of God's, God's law? Maybe think of it this way. Think about the first, let's say, five to ten seconds you meet somebody that you've never met before. How much do you learn about that person in those five to ten seconds? Quite a lot. You might learn something about their ethnicity. You might learn something about their socioeconomic standing. You might learn if they are physically fit or not. And we might learn all of these things, which are normal things that we learn from glancing at somebody. But what do many of us do after that? We start making some evaluative judgments about that person and their value and my interest in them. They say, ah, that person's not really my type of person, that sort of thing. And it's that dynamic that James is describing in this text and saying that should not be present in the church. Partiality is not something that should be present in the church. Instead, we are to be those who welcome, who love, who, who say, I am delighted that you are my brother and sister in Christ, even if we have nothing in common, and that we would treat them with the same dignity and the same honor as anyone else. So how do we do well, as James asks us to or presents for us in verse 8? We do well initially by examining ourselves, to actually look at our hearts and say, where have I done this valuation? And you know what we find often when we make a valuation about somebody? It's our own self-righteousness that sort of gets in the way, up under that decision to say this person is more valuable, is something about our own self-righteousness and our desire to look good. Now, if we think about James in context here, he is talking about riches and poverty. And I don't think James is asking us here to go out and, and single-handedly end poverty. He's not talking specifically about that, but he is talking about how we relate to those who are different from us. You know, many of us, uh, if we're maybe more well-off, we think about poverty primarily as not having money. 
But what's interesting is if you read some, some researchers on poverty, one in particular, Brian Fickard, has done a lot of study in this area, and he's noted both within the U.S. and globally, when somebody is poor, the thing they're primarily struggling with is, is actually shame. It's a shame of feeling ostracized. It's a fa- shame of feeling like there's no place for them, that they don't belong, that no one accepts them. And what James is describing in the church is a place that actually provides an antidote to that shame and welcome and says, you might not have money, but you have Jesus and you're welcome here. And that's the dynamic that he, he seeks to, to bring about. What does that mean for us? We're, uh, to, to phrase this in a, a very positive way, we can be an intimidating bunch of people. Did you know that? We can be an intimidating bunch of people. There are a lot of degrees floating around in this room. There's a lot of people that have been successful floating around in this room. And those are good things that God has blessed us with. But, you, but we also have to be very cognizant of the fact that somebody who doesn't have those things coming into our, our place of worship can actually experience a degree of intimidation. And that's not intentional. It's not a, a blaming thing. But James is asking us to be aware of these things and to treat everyone with shared dignity and shared wealth. And I've seen that happen well here. And James encourages us to continue in that, to invite us into this journey of being a place that welcomes all of those people in God's church together. Maybe one very tangible, practical way of doing some of the things that James expresses here is to invite somebody you never invite to whatever you do. And I you, you know who that is, you know that situation, but you know sometimes there are people who are like, yeah, I just, you know, they're not really my type of people. James isn't saying we have to be best friends with everybody, but he is saying that we give equal honor to everybody. And so he invites us to live the gospel in this way, with the principle of love guiding us. You might still be saying, why does this matter? Is this really a big deal? And James goes on to say, it is. Look at verse 10 and 11 with me. He goes and he says, keep the law, all of it all of it. And so what does he do? In James, keeping the laws is a very frequent theme, this idea of acting out our faith with our works. And he says in verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point is guilty of all of it. And at some level we get this, right? Think of somebody who doesn't pay their taxes, tax evasion. What are they? They're, they're a criminal, right? And so we treat somebody who breaks the law, whether it's murder or tax evasion, as a criminal. And so we get, in a certain sense, the logic that James is, is saying here, that if we break the law, we're, we're guilty of the law. But some of us might push back and say, really? Is my favoritism, is my partiality really that big a deal compared to murder and adultery that I'll get at in a moment? And James is saying, yes, all of it. You know, maybe think of it this way. We, we like to say, I generally am a good citizen, but I speed sometimes. Or we say something, I'm generally a good kid, right? I'm generally a good cook. And we define ourselves right by that generally. And James is saying, that's not how this works. And he's not trying to make us all just sort of feel like we're worthless, that we have no value. But he is saying that think carefully about your actions and that they are transgressions of the law. That all of this holds together. Particularly the sin of partiality is one that is against the very spirit of the law. We could actually, we don't have time to do this this morning, but we could take the sin of partiality and take the Ten Commandments and show that the sin of partiality violates the spirit of every single one of the Ten Commandments. Think of Commandment 10, not coveting. 
Partiality is a sense that it's coveting those who have more and saying, I want to be close to those people because they've got what I don't have. It's stealing. It's stealing the dignity of those who you're not being partial toward. And we could go through the list. But even more than that, what, how this all holds together is in the character of God. Look at verse 11. It says this, For he who said, for he who said, why is anything right or wrong? It's not just because God has a list of things that he's decided are right and wrong. The things that are right or wrong are a reflection of God's character. God is not partial. It says that frequently in Scripture. Romans 2, for example, other places in the Old Testament, it comes and it says, God is not partial. So when we are partial, we're acting out of line with God's very character, his very truth. And so in this way, we've broken all of the law. We have broken against God's very character. Maybe think of it this way. Uh, I know we probably all shop at HEB to some degree, right? Uh, we don't have a lot of options, so we go to HEB. And have you ever been to, you know, you got the little yellow tags at HEB? Um, and sometimes it's $1 off this item. But sometimes they're, I think they're called meal deals or something, right? And so then there's this little grainy picture with five items that you have to find around the store. And if you find all five items, they'll give you one of those items for free. Now, what happens, as has happened to me before, you're like, oh, this actually, you do the math, it looks like a decent deal. You get to the, the, the counter, you're paying, and what happens? You forgot something. Or you've got the six ounce one instead of the 12 ounce one. And do you get the deal then? No, you do not get the deal. That's what James is describing here, that the law holds together. Breaking one part is breaking all of it. And even things that we, you and I might say are subtle, like our favoritism, like our partiality, are an affront to God's very character and his gospel truth. And so for you and I, we hear this, and so we, we come with a degree of repentance, and we say, how do I move forward? James gives another example of this with the adultery and the murder. Really what he's saying there is picture somebody who says, well, I may have murdered somebody, but at least I didn't commit adultery. And James is exposing sort of the, the humor of that to say, that's ridiculous. None of us would say that person is a morally upstanding person. And then he says, that's the same even with our partiality and our favoritism. When we do that, we are working against God's very character, and we are liable for the whole law. Just as a parent, when you say, did you clean your room, and the room is only partially clean. We didn't do what God had asked to do. So how do we begin to make sense of this? How do we apply this? Well, again, it begins with some honesty, to look at ourselves and examine ourselves and say, where have I, where have I transgressed God's law? And it's okay to actually ask that question. That might feel like a, a, a terrifying question to ask, but that's what James is asking us to do. Where have I transgressed God's law? Where have through my words, my social interactions, my welcome, my lack of welcome, where have I been against God's truth and his law? And to ask yourselves honestly. Think of the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Luke 10, there's this parable, right, where, where somebody comes to Jesus, this man comes to Jesus and he asks you know, how can I have eternal life? And he, there's this dialogue back and forth. And Jesus says, tells him to love your neighbor as yourself. And then what does the man ask? He asks the question, who is my neighbor? And Luke, the writer of the gospel there, tells us why he asks that question. And it's this, to justify himself. He asks the question to justify himself. And I think that's 
partly in our hearts as well when we hear this call to love your neighbor as yourself, when we hear this language of partiality. There's a part of us in our hearts that asks the question, am I really guilty? And James is saying, examine your hearts and and do so not with the posture of trying to justify yourself, but with humility, coming and saying, Lord, where have I failed? Where have I failed? And how can I live in line with the gospel? Maybe there are two dangers in this, this passage. One is to read it and say, well, I'm a generally good person. I don't really struggle with this, so I'm just going to move on. I think most of us aren't, aren't there. The other danger may be this, to, to hear this and sort of run almost too quickly to the gospel in Jesus. We're going to get there. We're going to get to mercy and all of that in just a moment. But James is going slow. He's asking us to carefully consider where have we transgressed? Where have we transgressed? Where do we need to repent? Some encouragement. The church has historically done this pretty well. Sometimes we hear things about the church of how terrible Christians are and those sorts of things. But if we look carefully at church history, we see the church responding to the gospel and actually doing the things that James asks us to do. Let me share one example with you. It's from AD 125, and it's in a letter to the emperor Hadrian. Roman emperor, and it's written by a Christian Greek philosopher called Aristides. And so he wrote this letter to the emperor trying to describe what Christians were like as this new movement grew. And he said this, they love one another. And from widows, they do not turn away their esteem. And they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger... They take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. For they do not call them brethren after the flesh, but brethren after the spirit and in God. And whenever one of their poor passes from the world, each one of them, according to his ability, gives heed to him and carefully sees to his burial. That's the church living out James. Orphans and widows in their distress, loving one another, caring for the poor, all of those things. And how did the church do that? Well, they did it because they trusted the gospel. They leaned into the reality that all of them were in need of God's grace and his mercy, and so they went and they lived it out. I think so we should find encouragement, even as James can feel very convicting. The weight of the law can be very strong in James. But by God's grace, the church actually lived the way James is calling them to. And I've seen this body do the same. And we can continue to do that, to love well our neighbor. Because all of this is anchored to Jesus. Now, if this is what we see anchored to Jesus, the church doing this, what are we called to do? Look at verse 12 and 13. It says this, so speak and so act. Those words are are stressed, so speak and act. Because of what we have seen so far, do these things. Speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. But this speaking and acting is not just a momentary thing. He's calling us to a way of life through our, our speech and our acts, which is really all of our life, to live out what James is described here, has described here for us. And we do so with this understanding of judgment, Understanding of judgment. And this is the part of the passage that maybe we get to and we say, I don't, I don't like this part. He says, you have become a transgressor of the law and are to be judged under the law of liberty. 
And so two things to note here. One, how is the law described? Well, it's a law of liberty. It's a law of freedom. It's the same as the royal law, the law of the kingdom that Jesus has given to us, this fulfillment of the law that we now follow as we love our neighbor as ourselves, as we follow his Ten Commandments, as we follow what is true and revealed. We do so with liberty. We do so knowing that the payment has been made for our transgression. But we also follow knowing that we are to be judged, that there is a real actual judgment that Jesus will ask us, how did you do? And he won't just ask about murder and adultery, but he'll ask about favoritism and partiality. And so James, very artfully and very wisely inspired by the Spirit, holds together these two things, the law that we are judged under, one of liberty, one that we know that we will not meet, but Jesus has met, but also wants us to know that we will be held account. And so he asks us to consider this motivation as we speak and act and do the things that we are called to do. How do we do this? Well, verse 13 shows, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Think back in, earlier to our service, we read the parable of the talents, right? This picture of the man who is forgiven much. And what does he go and do? Well, he goes and he sort of exerts on this small little one, his power, and he says, you owe me this tiny little amount. Would you give it to me? And the point of that parable is that the one who had been forgiven much didn't really understand the wonder and beauty of the gospel. He didn't understand the amount of mercy that he would be shown. Because if you understand the mercy that you've been shown, you go and show mercy to others. And that's what James is, is saying here in verse 13, that the way we treat others, especially in our mercy, is an evidence of the fact that we have grasped the gospel. And so for you and I, when we think about how we treat one another... If we do say with mercy or with judgment, it is the fruit of the gospel that is at work. And so, again, James rounds to the gospel and says, this is how we are to be, those who show mercy. Think of Acts 10. Maybe you know this, this story. Acts 10 is the picture of Cornelius, who was a Roman centurion, who was becoming, had questions about Jesus, and he prayed, and so God told him to go and get Peter. And meanwhile, what is Peter doing? He's seeing a vision of things and the things that he is allowed to eat that were unclean, but now they've been made clean. And through this story, I know we're going quickly through it, what happens is Peter and Cornelius end up in the same place, this Roman centurion and this Jew, clean and unclean all together. And God has been working on Peter so that when they're together, what does Peter say? The first words he says as people are gathered to hear the gospel are this. He says, surely I now know that God does not show partiality. He said that because of the gospel. The gospel is a very reflection of God's very character. And so you and I, as we come to a passage like this, can rejoice that the gospel allows us to actually live as is described here. And together we can do this. So what do we do? We ask for mercy. If you feel conviction this morning, if you know that you have shown partiality and favoritism, then confess that. To come and, and find mercy, because how does this passage end? It says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In a sense, he's saying the, the mercy that, that we show to, to each other is evidence of what God is doing, and so the judgment won't be there. But even more than that, I think he's anticipating what James will get to in chapter 4. And it's this wonderful idea that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Mercy triumphs over 
judgment. And so our move as we read this is to go and ask for mercy. And as we do that, we then act and speak differently. We go act and speak as those who know the gospel. We act and speak as those who are going to not show partiality. And that can be very nuts and bolts this week. You can find that person that maybe you feel like you may have excluded and say, I want to welcome you. I don't have to make a big deal out of it. But your actions, your desire, your intent, your love for neighbor can be a way of living out what James is asking us to do. Let me end with this. Somebody shared this week with me the burial ritual of the Habsburg princes. Now, this will make sense in a moment. Uh, Remember the Habsburg princes? Maybe this is fuzzy in your history, but Europe, sort of Austria, Hungary, this empire, there are princes, very, you know, in power, all those sorts of things. Now, when these folks died, they had a very prescribed way that they were buried. In this church in Vienna, underneath the church, they they were all buried. And so you can picture a burial procession of a prince. The most recent one of these happened in 2011 with Otto von Habsburg as he passed away. And the procession of, you know, a thousand people goes down the street and comes to this sort of unassuming church door, and it's closed. And the herald who's leading this procession knocks on the door, and the priest standing behind the door says, who is it? And the herald gives a list of the prince's titles. And it's long. You can go on YouTube and watch this. It's about two minutes of titles. It's Grand Duke of this place and uh, Prince of this and Grand Prince of this. And, and it just goes on and on, listing all of these various places that he had dominion over. And he gets to the end of this list, and the priest behind the door says, we don't know him. And so the herald knocks again. And so then he says, who is there? And the herald gives another list, this time of the prince's accomplishments, all the things he actually did in his life. He was a doctor of this. He led the European parliament. He was on this society and that society, and it goes on for another minute or two and says, et cetera, et cetera. The priest behind the door says, we don't know him. So the herald knocks a third time. The priest says, who's there? The herald this time says, Otto von Habsburg, a poor sinner. And at that moment, the priest behind the door says, let him come in, and he's buried. It's a beautiful picture of the posture that James is calling us to. Our titles, our achievements, it's not what gives us membership in church's body, Christ's body. It's the blood of Christ shed for us, and so in that way, mercy triumphs over judgment. And as we know that, we speak and act as those who love our neighbor as ourself. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are a God who is gracious enough to expose even the sins that we deem as subtle, as those that go against your character. Lord, would we cling to your mercy? Would we delight that the gospel is true? Lord, would you make us a place that does not show partiality? Would you continue to grow us in this area, that we would love our neighbor as ourselves, just as we have been loved by you? I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.